Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. probably wondering why did I pick this obscure passage to preach on New Year's? Well, you'll see. Let's read verses 1 to 14. The verse I'm going to look at, it should leap out at you as we go through this chapter. This is Jeremiah's letter written to the exiles in Babylon. The Lord speaks through his letter very wonderfully. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of El Asa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes 
and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now we know from history what happened to the Jewish people who lived in the southern kingdom in the land of Judah. In the 6th century B.C., the Babylonians came down, they seized their city, Jerusalem, their capital. Not only did they seize it, they destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And thousands of Jewish people were deported to Babylon over quite a period of time in groups. Thousands of them had to leave their homes, leave their homeland, and went to this foreign country. It was a strange place. It was a heathen culture where they were taken. These are God's people, and no doubt they faced a lot of scorn, temptation, and trials and hardship in Babylon. And in this In these circumstances, they needed encouragement, they needed hope. Jeremiah sends this letter to them for that purpose. There's a couple of things I just want to bring out that he tells them. I don't know if you caught it or not. Their banishment is going to last for 70 years. That's That's a lifetime for a lot of people. That's a long time. They're going to be there for a long time. Not forever, but it's still a long time. And while they're there, Jeremiah tells them basically to settle down. Be content while you're there. Build houses. Grow your gardens. Give your children in marriage. Multiply there. So he wants God's people to just kind of relax and settle down there and not be anxious about leaving and getting back to the land because it's not going to happen like that. That's not God's plan for them. They're supposed to be in Babylon for all that time. He has that interesting word to pray for the city where they find themselves. Because their welfare in that city depends upon how it goes for that city. So pray for that city. Pray for the environment that you're in. And you'll be a direct beneficiary of the blessing that comes to them through your prayers. He adds to that not to be deceived by the false prophets who are giving them false hope. Apparently they were in the land as well. But God tells them he's got a plan for them, for their welfare. That's what we'll be looking at is that text. To regather them out of all the nations where they are, bring them back to the land of Israel, and to restore their fortunes, as he says. So the people are... They have a bright future, actually, even though they find themselves in these bitter circumstances for now. 
But essentially what God is telling them is that he has not forgotten them, he has not rejected them. And that's a wonderful thing about God's covenant with his people. God has entered into a covenant with us, the new covenant, ratified by the blood of Jesus, put into effect by his death, and it's all one-sided. It's all what he's going to do for us, not what we do for him. And God will be faithful to do what he has promised. For them who were in the covenant of the Old Testament, under the Abrahamic covenant, and us now in the new covenant. So let's look at verse 11. This is what I want us to think our way through. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Let's, let's start there with God knows the plans he has for you. We can apply this to ourselves as God's people. That whatever's written in the Old Testament is written for our encouragement, for our admonition, to build us up. So we can apply this word of God to us. Now, actually, the word for plan, the The Hebrew word occurs three times in this verse. You don't see it unless you have the NIV translation, which has it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. The Hebrew word is three times in this verse. So there's definitely an emphasis on this word, God's plans. Some of the translations have rendered it thoughts. I know the thoughts I have toward you or about you, says the Lord. So there's a couple of ways that this word has been translated. Let me just think about this first way, which is found in the old authorized version and then in the authorized version of uh, the American Standard Version of 1901 has this rendering, and several other versions render the Hebrew thoughts. Because the, the, the word can carry the idea to think on or to be mindful of. So let's, let's just think about this dimension of the text this morning, as though God were saying, I know the thoughts I have toward you. And then we'll come to plans. This is uh, the idea of God's thinking about his people. Our own mind is capable of numerous thoughts. I mean, they can't even be numbered the way our mind works. It's an amazing thing that God has equipped us. But we're made in God's image. And we are a thinking being because the creator is a thinker. And his thoughts are beyond comprehension. Paul says, no one knows the thoughts of God except, no one can comprehend, rather, the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In the psalmist says his thoughts are very deep. David says in Psalm 139 that the thoughts of God are as the sand, innumerable, incalculable. And I believe you can apply that to his people, how God, apl- how God thinks about us. How many times a day do you think about God? I would say that his people, we're in the habit of thinking about him all day long. 
Not every single second, but very, very frequently we are thinking of God. We'll flip that around and think of how he's thinking about us, about his people, his thoughts toward his people. For God to be thinking about us is something very positive, very wonderful. The psalmist says, For you have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. This is Psalm 40. God has multiplied his thoughts toward us. Surely who God thinks about is favored by him, is protected by him, is held in his hand by him. At the end of that same psalm, Psalm 40, the psalm that says, As for me, I am poor and needy. Don't we all feel like that this morning? Poor and needy. But he goes on and says, But the Lord takes thought for me. Let that cheer your heart, that you're in the thought of God. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. He has not rejected you. No matter what your life looked like this past year or has looked like in the past, God has been thinking of you all this time. His thoughts are toward his people. You know, I might say they're good thoughts. Even though we might find ourselves in very harsh circumstances, enduring different types of trial in our life, nevertheless, God is thinking good thoughts toward us because he loves us. So if you interpret the word as thoughts, you can think, a little, think along that line. I know the thoughts I have toward you. But let's take the, the idea of plan because the Hebrew word also means plans. It means to devise, purpose, plan, one's intentions. We, we make plans. People have made plans for today, on New Year's, what they intend to do. People are planning way ahead, months in advance and for vacation time, time away with their family. We make plans all the time. Sometimes our plans come to pass, sometimes... They don't materialize. But God has his plans too. And the Bible says that although man's plans often are thwarted and come, do not come to pass, God's plans stand and his plans will be carried out. In other words, don't think of this idea of plans as God merely... Uh, he has an idea, a design in mind that he hopes to implement, and it may or may not come to pass. No, that's not the way God's plans work. God's plans are fixed, and they're certain. So when he encourages the people by saying, I know the plans I have for you, he's telling them, you can be sure that my plans will be brought into your experience they will materialize. They will come to pass by his fixed decree, of course. Job said at the end of all his trials, after learning all the things that he was brought face to face with, with respect to the Lord, 
he, he made this confession, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's true of God's plans. It cannot be thwarted. cannot be frustrated. The plans of man will fall to the ground, but God's plans stand forever. And the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Psalm 33. So God knows the plans that he has for you. Now, what are the nature of those plans? People goes on to explain what it is. Very simple. Notice what his plans are. He tells us. God's plans are for, and I'm going to give it to you in the Hebrew, are for shalom and not for raw. My plans are for shalom, wholeness. Notice our translation uses that word rather than what we may associate with the Hebrew word shalom, peace. This is a very important word in the Old Testament. It's used over 250 times. Shalom. Remember, it's kind of the the culmination of the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face, lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace. I forget how it goes, but then he says, the very last thing, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And give you peace. That's the final blessing. It's kind of the consummate blessing. Give you peace. Give you shalom. I was looking in a Hebrew commentary of the Torah. That I have on the first five books of Moses. And the comment in there about shalom is that. That this word is the seal of all the blessings. Quoting the Talmud. Shalom is the seal of all the blessings. And here's kind of the range of meaning. It means not only freedom from all disaster, warfare, strife, and all the horrible things that come into the world, (laughs) but it includes health, welfare, security, and tranquility. Inward peace, outward peace. It's a very broad term, and that's why it was used as a greeting and a word of farewell. When you said shalom to somebody upon meeting them or when you're departing from them, you're really wishing them complete well-being and happiness. That's a beautiful word. So just think of this, what God is saying to his people in the land. My plans for you are for shalom. He didn't have to say anything else beyond that. That that said it all, that word. And they had a far greater appreciation of it than we do. Just like the Hawaiians understand aloha a lot better than we do. Unless we grew up in the Hawaiian culture. The profound meaning, it's all beautiful, it's all great. But let me ask you, what's in your future? What are, what are God's plans for you in the future? Well, I can say it's shalom. How can I say that? Because you belong to God. You're God's people. And his plans for his people are always shalom. This is the Old Testament. Word of his blessing on his people is shalom. 
So sometimes we're, we're tempted to say like old Jacob said, remember when all the things were going wrong for his sons as they were going to Egypt to get corn and they were coming back and saying, oh, the, the prime minister wants you to send Benjamin now. And he just, Jacob says, all these things are against me. You ever tempted to say that? Because of your circumstances, all these things are against me. Well, we might put that spin on it sometimes and we're losing our perspective. But balance it with what the psalmist says in Psalm 25.10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant. All the paths of the Lord toward his covenant people. For those who are keeping the covenant, and we keep the covenant by continuing in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one condition of being in the covenant, is faith in Christ. But even our faith is his gift. Our faith is sustained by the Spirit. So the whole thing is his work in us. But we can say, all the paths of the Lord toward us are steadfast love. That's the beautiful Hebrew word, said, for his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness toward us, and faithfulness. So when you're tempted to say, oh, all these things are against me, it's so terrible, what's happened to me? Well, remember, God's ways have always been toward you, loving kindness and faithfulness. All along. So shalom is in your future. And I like that he adds, and not for evil. Now he could have left that off. We still would have got the point. But adding this is a is a just seals the deal here, what he's saying to his people. My plans for you and my thoughts for you are shalom and not raw. Why did they need to hear that? Well, because they're in very bitter circumstances in Babylon. They're an afflicted people now. They've lost their capital city. They've lost the center of worship. Remember, their whole life centered around worship in the temple. Way more than being deprived of church and going to church. They lost it all when they lost Jerusalem in the temple. This looks like raw to me. Now the Hebrew word raw is also an important Old Testament word because it refers to the two kinds of evil that there are in the universe. There's only two kinds of evil. The evil of sin, which is moral evil, and this word also can refer to moral evil, but also the evil of suffering. The evil of lost, tragedy, sorrow, heartache, misery, calamity. And all of those, the evil of suffering is a result of the evil of sin. So Adam introduced it all into the world by his one sin. That's why there is the evil of suffering. But I believe his emphasis here is, my plans for you are shalom, Health, happiness, prosperity, wholeness, peace inward and peace outward. 
and not calamity, injury, harm. In other words, although they are suffering, God is telling them, my plan is not to harm you. Boy, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Because sometimes we might put that spin on it, that God is trying to ruin my life. You ever had a thought like that? What has happened to me has ruined my life. I want to say categorically this morning that there is nothing in your future that is intended to ruin your life. God does not mean harm and injury to the point of destroying you. That's not to say that there may not be suffering and trial in your future, but that is to be seen as God's shalom because he is using this in a way to bless you, to bring wholeness and completeness to your life. We must never interpret God's ways toward us as in any sense being malicious, cruel, harsh. It's not meant for raw, it is meant for shalom. It will in somehow, some way contribute to your wholeness. So this is, this is the lens through which you need to interpret your life. Past, present, and future. God's plans and his thoughts toward you is not raw, but shalom. Let that be the way you see what has happened to you. That way you'll be able to say with Joseph, when he said to his brothers who did all the evil to him, they really wanted to kill him. Some of his brothers. If it weren't for the restraining of Judah, Joseph would have been killed. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That is the lens through which we need to interpret our life and our life's experience. It's very important. And then just as a little side note, a theological sidebar here. In that context, let's recall the reasons that the Bible gives us for the trials that we go through. Would you be able to enumerate the different things? I would sum them up as four things in particular. What God is doing, they all begin with P, so you can remember them. Easily. First of all, to purge away evil. Our trials are intended to purge us of sin. An illustration of it is the three Hebrew children thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, when they got out, there was no smell of smoke on their clothes or anything, but they did lose something in the furnace. Remember what it was? The cords that they were bound with were burned off. Huh. Just think of that. Apply that to sin. The cords of sin that often entangle the Christian, that hold him in bondage, that continue to beset his 
pace in this journey of faith, we, we, we often lose them in the context of suffering. And this is what Peter says, correlate 1 Peter 4.1. Those that have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. If God can't get your attention to quit a certain sin in your life, you may have to suffer for it and come under his discipline. And believe me, when you come under the discipline of God, he will change your life. This will transform you and it will deal, force you to deal with sin and to break off with those sins. Remember the Apostle Paul said that he was given a thorn in the flesh? Why? To keep him from becoming lifted up with pride. That's the connection between suffering and sin in our life. It's to purge away evil. And so Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, lest he be lifted up with pride because of his vision. Remember, Paul went to the third heaven. Huh. He had an amazing experience, out-of-body experience, entering into the paradise of God. And he saw and heard things he could not even repeat. But imagine having an experience like that, a real one, not a made-up one. A real experience, out-of-body experience. You might tend to think he's special. When he tells us as a messenger of the evil one was sent to afflict him. So that's the connection. The purpose of God in, in our suffering is sometimes to purge us of sin. Secondly, God proves and improves our faith through suffering. Those are two different ideas. That's why I use that word. To prove. Have you ever had doubt that your faith, you don't know whether your faith is sincere or not, and you struggle? I wonder if I'm really a believer or not. Then you go through trial and suffering. Huh. You pass through that trial and suffering, you come out on the other side and your faith is stronger. It never crossed your mind that you were going to jump overboard and walk away from Jesus Christ. Your faith grew through that experience and God has proved your faith to you. He has demonstrated that you are a believer because you not only survived the trial, but you grew through it. You were improved by it. Your graces were strengthened. And so Peter, again, the great first letter of Peter is all about trials in the Christian life. Right in the first chapter, he talks about the trial of your faith. Trials put the fire on our faith. That's when our faith is put in the crucible and we, God turns on a torch... And like he would gold in order to purify gold and bring the dross to the surface. This is how you do it. You, you turn the heat up on gold. You cannot burn gold up. You put a very hot flame on gold, it ain't going to burn up. What it will do is burn the impurities out of it. And they come to the surface. This is my background in dental technology. This is the illustration of what God does with our faith, the trial of your faith when he puts the fire to it. He proves that we have faith and then he improves it. He grows it. Number three, 
Trials prepare us for service. Now look at the lives of Joseph, how he was prepared to serve God in Egypt. But look at the the chain of events that had to occur for him to get to that place where he was really useful to God. (laughs) It was amazing. Take Paul in the New Testament, the trials of the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is true of all God's people, that they suffer in order to be better servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a text for that, I would turn you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction. Why? In order that we may be able to comfort those who are also afflicted and need comfort. So Paul's sufferings made him better able to comfort other Christians who suffer as well. You know, this is, this is all part of the grand scheme of things when God tries His people. He's making you a better servant of His. He's, pre- fit, he's preparing you to serve in a way that you may never have thought until you went through a particular time in your life. Now you're in a place where you're useful to him. And then finally, trials promote our future glory. I don't quite understand exactly what Paul means by this, but the words are found in 2 Corinthians 4.17, where he says, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And then also he adds that our light afflictions work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's actually the verse I'm thinking of. 2 Corinthians 4.17 That our afflictions work for us a far greater weight of glory. Somehow they will promote our greater glory in the next life. I'm not sure how that works, but there's a connection between what we go through now and our state in the next life. Okay, thirdly, coming back to our text, God's plans give you a future and a hope. Look at the verse again. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. And then the the NIV puts it, plans to give you a future and a hope. So God's plans are to give us a future and a hope. Now the Hebrew is interesting. The words that are used there, they can be translated Plans to give you an end and an expectation. An end and an expectation. The end appears to be like a destiny. So this is the idea of a a future. And then an expectation is, is building on that, meaning a hope. 
that you're anticipating something in the future. So God's, God's plans are to give us a future and a hope, a destiny, something to anticipate in the future. And so they're in exile. This is exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to know that this is not going to last forever, even though I might die in exile. Nevertheless, for God's people generally, and for those that would come after who would be born in Babylon, this would be a special word for them, the new generation. That God is going to regather them, he's going to return them to the land, and he's going to restore them. This is the plan that God has for Israel. Now, we can think the same. It follows that if God's plans for us are shalom, not raw, that we have every reason then to be full of hope for 2023. Like Jen was saying, the past year has been a difficult year. Some of you have gone through trials this past year. Some who are not here today who have been in accidents, have had bones broken as well, who have gotten sick. We just don't know what a year is going to hold, but the thing is that we need to realize this, that as God's people, the future belongs to the church, to the followers of Christ. And we should always have this this perspective that God's people should never think of the future as dark and dismal, gloom and doom. Now, that's true for unbelievers. Their future does not look good. If they don't come to faith in Christ, they, they don't have a future like God's people do. The future for God's people is not raw, but shalom. It's the exact opposite of raw. It's a beautiful future, full of hope for all those who have been redeemed by Christ. So what's in your future? Not what's in your wallet, but what's in your future? Go ahead and say, shalom is in my future. Shalom is in my future. The great Apostle Paul concluded his section of Romans on the presentation of his gospel with that great verse. I want to end with Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we anticipate this coming year regardless of what the culture looks like and what's happening around us. Still, for God's people, the future is bright, it's full of hope. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.